Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have Nian Shen Song, who is Assistant Professor of History and an affiliated faculty in the Asian Studies program at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. And he'll be talking about his new book, Making Borders in Modern East Asia, The Tuman River Demarcation, 1881 to 1919 which was published in 2018 by Cambridge University Press. Plenty of attention has been paid to East Asia's maritime territorial disputes in recent years, and with good reason. But this may somewhat have obscured the contemporary history of more terrestrially rooted negotiations over who controls which bit of land among states like China, Korea, Japan, Russia, and so on. As Nianchen Song's Making Borders in Modern East Asia shows, though, The definition of land borders here has over time had a significance which endures right up to the present. Focusing on the Tuman River, which today winds its sluggish course between China, North Korea and Russia, and anchoring himself in a particularly febrile time period from the late 19th to the early 20th centuries, Song takes us into a world of imperial emissaries and warlords, migrant farmers and bandits, as he deftly shows how the borders between these countries took shape before and during their control by the Japanese Empire. Drawing on a quite extraordinary array of multilingual archives in China, Japan, Korea and elsewhere, the book also takes us beyond these highly local events unfolding around the Tuman a century ago to reveal the central place they played in more momentous multinational affairs. The author's deft marshalling of perspectives and sources reveals the importance of the Tuman demarcation to wider questions over sovereignty, empire, borders, memory, and modern senses of Chinese, Korean, and Japanese identity and nationhood themselves. But the author himself is here to tell us more, and so I'll say Nian Song. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ed. I'm glad to be here. Great. Well, it's really good to have you on. Um, But before we get into talking about the book, uh, perhaps I could just begin by asking you how you became interested in this knotted borderland location and this particular time in history. Uh, Sure. Uh, Before coming to the United States to study history, uh, I was a journalist in China working for a newspaper. Uh, It was not until uh, I was quite late. uh, I remember that was 2003 that for the first time, I had an opportunity to visit Northeast China. Uh, I was assigned uh, by my boss to report about uh, the borderland between China and North Korea. Uh, uh, That was the background of of that story was, you know, uh, the news that North Korea uh, was launching its nuclear project. So that was the first time I visit uh, these borderland area. I have zero, you know, zero knowledge, literally zero knowledge about that borderland before uh, as a person living, you know, born and living in uh, the capital city, Beijing, for almost his entire life. Um, so the story of that trip was fascinating. Um, it was started from Hunchun, you know, the city you are very familiar with. Um, when you really stand out the uh, the corner uh, where the three countries, uh, Russia, China, and North Korea, uh, adjourns together. Um, that was a very uh, interesting feeling. You, you can see the border, and you can uh, talk to the local people about their story, about their life, but nothing really sounds familiar uh, with your pre-knowledge of border. You think, you know, we tend to think that border is something very, uh, absolute. You cannot cross the border without a passport, right? Uh, you cannot go to another country without a visa. But l- living in the borderland uh, provide a, a totally different life experience. Uh, that was for the first time 
I learned that actually in the 1970s and even in the early 80s, people can fairly uh, you know, easily cross the Tumen River to go to the other front. And uh, we all know about, you know, heard about uh, the story about North Korean refugees. Um, the local people, local uh, Korean Chinese, uh, had a very different view. They saw there was nothing wrong with that. Uh, their fellow uh, people uh, seek help from them, and they provide food and medicines and let them go back. Uh, it was exactly what they did uh, for decades. So these uh, was how I was interested in this uh, story. Um, so later on, when I got an opportunity to study uh, political science at LSE, uh, I tried to use this experience uh, to write my uh, master degree thesis. At the time, I was pursuing uh, a, a degree in political science. And then I found out that uh, the poly science doesn't really provide a very useful framework for me to analyze and interpret uh, this kind of uh, uh, feeling about the border, about the local people living in the border. So I think if I really want to discover and rediscover the story and tell the tension uh, across that border, I may, you know, I may have to go to other uh, disciplinary. So I found history. Um, that is how uh, I, I went to the United States. And before that, of course, I, I read uh, several books written by uh, you Chicago professors like uh, Presenja Dora and Bruce Cummings. So that made me decided to uh, go to Chicago uh, to study with them. That's my story. Right, right, right. No, well, it's uh, it really comes out in the book itself that uh, this kind of interest in the historical evolution and the, and the process by which this border came into being um, began for you with very contemporary interest, with, with uh, a present-day preoccupation with what's going on there. Because um, although uh, the book in its title has this uh, kind of 40-year, roughly 40-year time period uh, in it, actually the parameters of what you discuss go way beyond that and, and, and take us back before that period and, and, and all the way up to the present day. So I think that's, um, you know, uh, in, in effect, the, the book undersells its, uh, its insights into this, uh, this situation, which uh, you so uh, well described there. Um, but uh, great. Well, now we know something about uh, how it came about and, and how your interest started in it. Uh, why don't we get right into the book itself? Um, so you begin uh, the book with a kind of introduction that sets up um, the particular kind of configuration of of places and people uh, around the uh, around the border point uh, at the particular historical point in time that you begin the end of the Qing dynasty. Um, but I wonder, actually, I mean, uh, before kind of the actual historical uh, content comes to, to the fore, could you just give us a better picture of of the kind of configuration of borders in that region and 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 what it is the area that we're talking about? As you mentioned, you came there from Beijing. It's not so familiar to many people, including in China or even in Korea or, or in Russia. So could you just describe a bit more about the, the particular geography and, and, and kind of yeah, borderlands configuration of that region uh, now and in the past? Sure. Uh, the Tumen River, uh, the main feature of, of my book, uh, is one of the two boundary rivers separating uh, current China and North Korea. Uh, but for many people, the two river borders, the Yalu River uh, is the other river, uh, was always there. Uh, that is uh, largely true because uh, the historical record shows that ever since the Ming Dynasty, the two countries uh, uh, sort of uh, decided that the two natural river will be natural boundaries of the two countries. So for many people, there's no problem at all, you know, if you didn't live in that region, uh, because that was perhaps one of the, uh, you know, uh, one of the uh, long, uh, one of the river with a very long history, but on the other hand, it's still effective today. So it at least, uh, you know, that the history of the border can trace at least back to 400, 500 years. Um, but what really became problematic was the coming of the more, what we call modern era, 
run a new set of ideas of territory and people and a nationality came about. What happened was in the late 19th century, numerous Korean uh, peasants uh, crossed the Tumen River and squatting in uh, the north of the Tumen River. Uh, the, the land was uh, regarded by the Manchu rulers of the Qing dynasty as their homeland. Um, so up until that point, uh, the river as the boundary was challenged. And uh, there was, uh, you know, uh, many, many questions raised about, you know, was river, was the true river that recorded in history, uh, how to define people that cross the river. Uh, the background of that was, the, this is very important, is the expansion of European colonialism. We know that in the 1860s, Russia expanded all the way uh, to this region. Uh, it grabbed land of all the land uh, east to the Usuri River, and uh, the Russian territory extends all the way to the Tumen River mouth. So the river, for the first time, between two countries, but three countries. And this is the backdrop that urged the Qing and Chosun, uh, the two, uh, we can sort of, you know, uh, re, uh, think them as allies uh, uh, to redefine uh, their boundary. Uh, so the, the process is very much of a self-identification, a re-identification of themselves. Right, right. And that's the kind of process and some of the key insights that the book provides as a whole. Um, and you uh, actually begin the book, in fact, with one of the uh, sort of I guess, outcomes of this desire to redefine or, or this impetus to try and draw the lines in a new way, this um, steely, I, I think that's the pronunciation of that word. It's, it's, it's one that I see a lot, this word bay or whatever, I see it a lot in, in English, but very rarely hear it said, but I think it's steely. Anyway, um, this uh, mukadong, mukadong steely. So um, this this stone that, that marked the, the, the boundary between Chig and, and, and Choson and its disappearance uh, in the 1930s. Could you say why you why you, why do you begin the book with this particular uh, boundary marker as as a kind of what's what's so important and what's so uh, indicative about the story of this uh, this marker and its disappearance that you describe? Uh, this is a very good question. Uh, the whole boundary issues uh, is around this steely. Uh, in 1712, uh, the, the Emperor Kangxi of the Qing Dynasty. Uh, decides to uh, refigure out the geography of his homeland, Manchuria, uh, because uh, at the time, Kangxi was facing the uh, geopolitical uh, competition from the north, the Russian Empire. And he found that you know, no one had concrete knowledge about Manchuria, particularly the uh, borderland, uh, not only between Russia and China, but also between China and Korea. So he dispatched this uh, Manchu official named Mukadeng to figure out the precise location of the border. Uh, but no one really questioned the border yet at the time, because recorded in the history, numerous historical records and document that Tumen River and Yalu River were the boundary. The only a small section between the two upper streams was very vague because of you know the the the, the topography. Uh, it was the peak of Changbai Mountain, or in Korean called Park Dusan. Right, it's very high mountain, forest area, very uh, 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 hostile environment. So no one uh, was living there, and no government was uh, pay special attention to that region. Uh, so the uh, Emperor Kangxi believed that it was a time for him to figure out the precise law of the border between that, that two small upper streams. So in 1712, he dispatched uh, this official named Mukadeng to uh, investigate the boundary. And uh, there was a joint, sort of a joint investigation of the border um, uh, between the Qing and the Chosun. And Mukadeng erected steely. Uh, in a place southwest to the uh, volcano lake uh, in Chinese called Tianchi, uh, on the peak of the uh, the Bagdosan, 
so a place uh, a little bit south and a little bit north, uh, about five leagues to that point, and decided this is the watershed or uh, drainage divide between the two border rivers. So that was the first time that the government uh, tried to give a very clear definition of the so-called border. Uh, the problem also emerged uh, because <clears throat> the uh, drainage system in the mountain was very, very complicated. So it turns out that Mukden wrongly appointed the headstream of the Tumen River. So if uh, people follow the Mukden steady and all uh, uh, the uh, uh, wooden and uh, earth uh, marks and connect the city to the very uh, head of the so-called Tumen River stream uh, and follow that stream, the stream actually later it turned north and joined the Sangali River. Uh, the, the Chosen uh, realized this mistake um, several months after the you know the first investigation joint investigation uh, uh, project, but they didn't really report it. They just recorded. Uh, so that city became a point of debate in the late 19th century when thousands of Korean refugees claimed that. Uh, what they crossed was not the border, but a domestic river, right? The true border, they called it Tumen, uh, was further north. So the city itself marked not only the historical kind of records of the uh, very first attempt to demarcate uh, the boundary, but also a political symbol uh, of the, the ideas of territory in the late imperial. Uh, era. So the disappearing of this city also has very interesting connotation because, first of all, the time of its disappearing is in the July 1971. We all know that what happened in 1971. Uh, the Kwantung Army fabricated the Mokdong incidents and launched a foot attack and occupied Manchuria. So after the Manchuria became a, a, a Japanese colony, basically the two colonies, uh, Manchuria and Korea, joined together, became uh, a very um, two very important agriculture and industrial bases of Japanese empire. So from the Japanese pers perspective, uh, there was no need to emphasize that boundary anymore because, you know, eventually they are, you know, the, the Korean and Manchuria are like two provinces of Japanese empire. So the disappearing or, you know, the uh, stealing of that city had this very uh, interesting political connotation, that very specific moment. Uh, that is uh, uh, one of the main reasons I choose this moment to start my book. Yeah, and it's, it's a particularly kind of compelling example or a kind of um, almost biographical account of how borders and, and the ideas around them have, have shifted in this region and I suppose you know in other parts of the world too over time and, and the fact that there are these long written records that you draw on from both sides of, of how this how the line was defined or how the boundary between these imperial spaces was uh, demarcated uh, it gives a particularly clear case of a clear sense of what kind of went on when different political bodies were trying to work out where their uh, boundaries lay uh, in, a, in an era but well before uh, you know uh, the kind of uh, cartography that was introduced from uh, from Europe later on or well and, and before or around the same time as the first cartography was coming in but I mean the detailed knowledge of this region was was not so clear and so yeah I think I think this kind of um, long uh, biography of this particular stone is very revealing of a kind of uh, yeah, the, the, the broader story you tell of the transition from a sort of pre-modern sense of where boundaries are to a, to this territorial or borderland modernity, uh, and and so um, I'm just wondering. Uh, also, in this introduction, you kind of place the book as a whole in the context of studies of borders and and uh, focus or other on nation states or or non-focus on nation states. Um, so, could you say more about how you see the role of very local events like? those surrounding this Mukadong Stili, um, what is the place of such intimately local affairs in the broader kind of world historical or regional historical 
currents uh, that you investigate? Yes, um, I think you know. First of all, I I am writing a local history, but not from the local uh, just just a local perspective. I try to relocate these local events in a border uh, framework um, because this is a borderland. So it immediately involved not just one country but multiple countries. So you, we have to you know sort of bring in a regional uh, geopolitical framework to understand why such an event happened. Otherwise, uh, like many uh, uh, you know, previous studies that done by the Chinese, uh, the Korean, or Japanese historian, you are just talking about a border dispute uh, from the perspective of your own country. You're arguing about the sovereign rights uh, of this borderland, uh, you know, to which country these land belong to. Uh, that that is precisely the perspective I I try to avoid. I think you know to understand the whole picture of these events and its significance. We have to you know really relocate these local events in not just one country's framework, but multiple countries' framework. And uh, to this end, it's also useful to bring in the global perspective. That is, you know, the coming of the European colonialism and a whole new set of rhetoric to redefine land and people. Um, so uh, I think it's, you know, only use these uh, multilateral, I call it a multilateral and multilayered perspectives, can we um, a little bit, you know, getting a little bit closer uh, to the true significance uh, of these history uh, of, of not only the demarcation, but also, you know, how the people and land the ideas of people and the land involved in this critical 40 years. Mm, mm. So, well, that leads us on quite neatly to chapters one and two, which kind of delve a bit more deeply into the negotiations and the uh, kind of transformations in territorial and, and borderland understanding that were occurring both in China and in Korea, um, I mean, which we can use a shorthand for the Qing and, and Choson. Um, the sort of dynastic spaces uh, towards the end of each of those kind of dynasties. Um, so in terms of the level of uh, understanding and, and detailed knowledge of this region um, from each side, and, and uh, as mentioned, one of the strengths of the book is that it does kind of adopt this multilateral, multi-perspectival approach. Um, how did uh, the kind of uh, transformation occur from what the... Uh, Choson and the Qing considered to be territory, considered to be uh, sovereignty over land. How did that? How did that change uh, in this late imperial period? Oh, um, we have to uh, first understand the uh, bilateral relations between Qing and Choson. Uh, that relation is often tagged as so-called tributary uh, relations or tributary system. Um, so. It is not a normal, you know, quote unquote, normal international relations as we understand now, uh, because they have a very special uh, bondage, uh, bound by ritualized uh, political performance and trade, and so on and so forth. So, uh, at the first phase of the negotiation, both sides tried to uh, really manipulate and use these kind of special relations, special bondage and use the traditional rhetoric uh, to really get their own uh, best interests out of this negotiation. So it's not to say that they don't uh, really care about their national interests. They do. Uh, and uh, uh, both of them uh, knew uh, precisely how to use these tributary rhetoric to get the best interest. So uh, the seeking for the best outcome for their own state this hasn't changed in the entire process, but the rhetoric changed. So in the first phase, um, both sides try to say, um, because we have this special interest, so uh, the, you need to yield it more uh, than I do. And uh, they both use um, uh, quite skillfully um, uh, the historical argument, uh, try to seek a geographic or spatial resolution for the dispute. Uh, this is something I found very interesting. So history uh, is 
a sort of uh, a, a guideline to the uh, uh, topographic investigation. So it's not to say that what happened in the local uh, t- uh, uh, situation was not important, or it's not to say that the geography uh, didn't important. Uh, no, but geography have to be understood under the framework of history. So it's part of history. So that that is uh, a, a very interesting aspect of the you know first phase negotiation, in my view. Hmm. Mm. And and I mean, actually, sort of on that point, um, especially from the the, the Chinese side, the the, the Qing side, um, what was the sort of place of Manchuria of this northeastern region within the kind of self-imagination of, of the Qing uh, as, a, as a political body? I, I mean, how much was the relationship of the centre in, in Beijing to this uh, kind of origin region for, for Manchu people? How much was that kind of predicated on ideas about who lived in the territory uh, or how much... Uh, the history of the Manchu people was rooted in the geography, as you say. I mean, what was the what, what, what's your perspective on the on the particular place of Manchuria within uh, Qing history, if you like? Yeah, uh, Manchuria is a very unique place, uh, very unique domains. If we com- if we compare it with, say, China proper or other Inner Asia frontiers, uh, because yes, uh, as Owen Latimer said in his great book that uh, Manchuria. Uh, is one of the four, uh, in his mind, uh, inner Asia frontiers of the Qing. But Manchuria, unlike uh, Mongolia, Tibet, and Xinjiang, uh, was also something unique because Manchuria was regarded by the Manchus, the ruling people, as their homeland. So uh, unlike the policy that the Qing uh, implemented in other inner Asia frontiers, uh, for for example, Im- immigration, military conquest, and set up you know what are kinds of, of administration uh, to rule local people in Manchuria, it was basically the opposite. Um, uh, the Qing, for the large part, uh, forbade people to cultivate the land in Manchuria, to develop Manchuria, to seek profits from these vast and 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 uh, very rich. Land because precisely because you know Manchuria was regarded as the holy birthplace uh, of the Manchu people, but that changed in the 19th century significantly. Uh, as I mentioned before, the Russian expansion uh, greatly alerted not only the Manchu elite but also the Han elites. So that uh, 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 boundary dispute happened also in a very interesting moment that people in the Qing court in Beijing start to rethink about the significance of Manchuria. Uh, so a lot of the Manchu and Han elites argue that we need to explore this frontier, we need to use the frontier, we need to make the frontier part of the so-called uh, hinterland. And that you know, happened precisely at the moment when they found out that numerous Korean refugees crossed the border and uh, reclaimed the uh, the wild land there. Right, right, and and that to cross to the sort of Korean side. I mean, you have mentioned already that since the Ming, there was a sense that the Yalu and Tumen acted as kind of natural geographical boundaries. Um, but it's also the case that uh, uh, you know up to the present, you hear uh, these stories told about the historical sort of Korean states that existed uh, in this in, in parts of this Manchurian region, whether that's Koguryo or Pare, Bohai, these these kind of states which may or may not have had, you know, different populations, but had ruling elites who were somehow uh, interpretable later as Koreans. Um, how did that uh, kind of history figure in the Choson's approach to Manchuria? I mean that they obviously knew about these historical states that had something to do with states on the Korean peninsula. I mean, and also, I guess, as an additional question, I mean, uh, the fact that the Chosun remained kind of loyal to the Ming even after the Qing took over uh, is also a factor in their relationship with the Qing. So was there uh, always a kind of interest in Manchuria uh, from the Chosun side that had something to do with that 
history of, of Korean states in this area? I wouldn't say as always, because for me, uh, this kind of nostalgia to the so-called ancient Chosun or ancient Korean kingdom, the, the glorified past, uh, was very modern, actually. It was, uh, you know, became very popular among the uh, neo-Confucian elites only after the Manchu conquest of, of China. So it was very much a, a, a reaction uh, to the question about you know who was China or who was the Chinese now after the Manchu Congress because uh, uh, you probably heard of it you know after uh, the two Manchu chosen elites had a very uh, uh, hostile uh, attitudes towards Manchus and after the conquest of Beijing they even questioned you know um, to what extent can we say that China still existed um, and many of them believe that. Uh, the people who actually inherited the true Chinese civilization was the Koreans. So under that backdrop, um, a group of new thinkers start to reconstruct their uh, own history and to look north, right? Uh, so it was very much as a, a post-17th, 18th century phenomenon uh, to really emphasize the so-called northern frontier. Uh, and the the, the lost uh, homeland that actually uh, later developed in a nationalist era, you know, by uh, great thinkers like Shen Tao um, and and, and Chang Juan, uh, to uh, into a very intimate about its history. But also, we need to understand that uh, during the Chosun period, the northern frontier, uh, I mean, the two provinces of Ping'an and Hengen, was also a very marginalized province. Right. The people in there were basically very poor, and the uh, market economy uh, was not allowed, uh, and uh, people uh, get very limited access of upward mobility. So, uh, so it's a very uh, controversial kind of attitude. At one time, uh, you know, uh, on the one one hand, uh, the elites in in Seoul uh, start to, to rethink about their own history and say, "Hey, we need to pay attention to Kokryo and uh, in the Pai and and." Dynasty, and uh, we need to, you know, rewrite our sort of rewrite our own our own history uh, to face, you know, the, the pressure from the north, the, the you know the the Manchu people, the barbarian people. On the other hand, they they also sort of discriminate people in the northern frontier. So the 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 you know the Tumen River region was what I called a dual frontier for both uh, the Chinese. The Qing China and the Chosun Korea. Mm, mm. And I guess then that expansion of uh, Korean uh, farmers and, and, and people reclaiming land uh, uh, that you've already alluded to briefly at the end of the 19th century and early into the 20th century kind of leads these things to elide. I mean, this uh, historical imagination, this kind of rebirth of nostalgia about um, historic kingdoms, and, and then also. Um, yeah, the, the 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 kind of demographic fact of of Koreans within this sort of Manchurian space. Um, so moving on through the book uh, into into chapter three, um, you describe how with the arrival of Koreans in this area, um, there came sort of an understanding of this area as a kando or, or jiandao in, in in Chinese, and and, and and that kind of became a a particular region over which some of these negotiations around territory and borders took place. Um, so could you sort of say what what Kandor was, uh, or what uh, kind of a, a space it, it became sort of socially as well as geographically? Um, and uh, then we can move on perhaps to how uh, Japanese influence too in early in the 20th century and, and later on kind of uh, also contributed towards the reconceptualization of this borderland area. Sure. Um, you know, first of all, I, I should say that it's very, very difficult to define what Kando is, uh, because everyone has a different interpretation of this particular term. So I have to go back to the history to see, you know, what, you know, in what document that these term first appears. And I find out that actually uh, the chosen delegates for the, you know, uh, Tuma River negotiation in the 1880s, Yi Chong-ha, he mentioned for the first time the term uh, you know, he tried to define the term kando. 
And according to him, Kanto only, you know, initially refers to a very small piece of land. Uh, in nowadays, Helong County, it was referred to a, a shore area that first immigrants uh, try to cultivate. So it's a very small uh, sort of uh, 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 riverbed area. But later on, these so-called Kanto space expanded uh, to the extent that it covered almost the entire northern bank of the Tumen River. Uh, by the late, uh, well, by by the by the end of 1910s, Kanto was the home of roughly uh, uh, 300,000 Korean refugees, and it became uh, literally a Korean space beyond the Korean state. Uh, so that that's why I think you know uh, it, by investigating the history of this term, uh, I, I try to demonstrate that you know. The term itself uh, refers to different things, different space uh, in different time. And not to mention that different people use the term in a drastically different way. For example, the Chinese, uh, the Chinese government never really recognized uh, the legitimacy of this term. So although the historical books recorded this, this term Jiandao, but when they mention Jiandao, it's always in quotation marks because it was not a legitimate term for the Chinese. Whereas the Koreans use this uh, term inconsistently. Um, I read some c- contemporary documents. Uh, one of the most exaggerated exa- uh, definitions of Kondo is uh, it includes uh, such a vast area from the Liaodong Peninsula all the way to the uh, Russian Far East. So it's... Uh, 2.7 times, or I, I can't remember the exact term, ex- exact number, 2.5 uh, or 2.7 times bigger than the Korean Peninsula itself. So, so, so the, this is something. Well, I think we need to, you know, uh, seriously consider why um, this was the case because it was an imagined space, right? But people tried to give it this imagined space some concrete content and meaning. And that was precisely the process. Um, the process itself uh, is precisely what we should pay attention to and try to uh, understand and try to uh, uh, interpret. Mm, mm. So within that sort of uh, imagination uh, of, of this, yeah, this area, as you say, Kandor, Jendal, which has these shifting parameters and, and very different Connotations for different groups of people, and um, I suppose the most significant sort of group within that are these these Korean migrants. Um, so, how did their presence there ne- sort of inform negotiations over who the land belonged to, and also who they were, uh, who the, who they were subjects of? Um, you know, as they came into this area at the end of the Qing Dynasty, into this region, which, as you already said, had been kept deliberately empty. Uh, by the, the the Manchu Qing government as much as possible. Um, how did uh, discussions over their belonging to either the Choson dynasty based in, in Hansong in, in, in Seoul uh, or, or, or their kind of potential sort of becoming citizens of uh, of, of the Qing? Uh, how did how did those kind of negotiations play out? Uh, this is a, a you know terrific question, Ed. Um, I think you know um, one of the uh, point that previous uh, scholarship missed was the agency of local people, namely the Korean migrants uh, living uh, in the border area. So in chapter three, I try to uh, try my best to give you know their voices um, you know certain weight um, in the local area. Um, local residents played a critical role. So it was not the case that, you know, the state decided the direction of negotiation. It was always the opposite. It was the local resident informed and directly or indirectly instructed state uh, to act on their behalf and to act, uh, 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 you know, to gain their best interests. So it was precisely the case of the Korean squatter. They are not consistent 
uh, uh, group, right? Some people believe the bad interest is to, you know, argue for the uh, territorial rights uh, for the Korean government. Some believe that the best uh, benefits for them was to join the the, the Qing and uh, have the, you know, sort of register themselves to the Qing government and have the rights to own land. Uh, and and they, they, they all sort of involve in these negotiation process with both government. Um, so the Yanbian area, now, nowadays the Yanbian area or the so-called Kendall area, was actually developed by these people, right? Uh, and their true choice to align with either government uh, very much shaped the negotiation process and very much shaped the modern development of uh, local ecology and local society. So uh, that's why I, right, in, in chapter three, I try to show who is really shaping uh, the form of the society across, you know, the, this, this, this border river and what's the connection uh, between people living in the north and the people remaining in the south. Uh, I, I think, you know, I have to, uh, you know, we, we need to understand the, uh, you know, the, 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 the flexibility of their identity making and also the fluid of their moving, right? So it's, it's, it's very important to understand this is a migrant society. And it was not shaped by the state, but it very much shaped what state looked like in a local society. Right. And you kind of give some really intriguing details about how claims made by this community over where the borders were as well, uh, the kind of which rivers were in which places and whether they had actually, in fact, crossed any any national divides in their migration, uh, how their kind of claims around these things really did uh, get elevated to the level of state uh, kind of um, uh, governments and, and, and consideration by important people over where the boundaries of their of their realms lay. Um, but there's a kind of to and fro that you discuss over whether these uh, Korean migrants can become Qing subjects or what the and what the response of uh, the, the the government in Seoul is to that. Um, but of course, this whole picture gets very much transformed by the arrival of Japan, uh, who uh, had, you know, after the uh, Russo-Japanese War, had Korea as a protectorate from 1905 and then uh, moved to full annexation in 1910. So how did these Koreans become a stake of Japanese sort of colonial uh, expansion on, initially on the Korean peninsula and ultimately their moves to uh, kind of look at Manchuria as a potential uh, Japanese frontier in addition to Chinese and Korean? Right. Um, so Japan uh, in the early 20th century had just one enemy, not Korean, certainly not Qing China, uh, uh, which they defeated already in 1895, but Russia. Uh, I will argue that even up to the World War II, Japan in that region is really facing you know, just one enemy, Russia. So everything that uh, the Japanese uh, uh, politician uh, uh, you know, try to uh, implement in this area, you have to understand that um, they are facing uh, the pressure from, from Russia or vice versa. So the, the, the real geopolitical competition was be, not between Japan and China or Japan and Korea, but between Japan and Russia. To that end, Japan need uh, Manchuria, right, to be a solid ground for them uh, to further uh, uh, exploit the uh, East Asia mainland. So uh, if we understand that in this way, we, we sort of can understand why uh, politicians like Ito Hirobumi had such a grand design for the Yanbian area in particular, but, uh, but also Manchuria in general, because Manchuria was a forefront uh, to confront Russia. So um, in that sense, Japan need. Uh, not just one gateway uh, to enter Manchuria, that is uh, Dalian and Liaodong Peninsula, when they, they, after the Russo-Japanese War, they already got it, but also uh, a west gate uh, that is from Yanbian region uh, across the Tumen River. Uh, so east, that was even more strategic, I would argue, than uh, Liaodong Peninsula. 
So Japan, you know, uh, desperately need that uh, uh, kind of geopolitical spot, and they found, you know, the the, the most convenient way to do this is to uh, claim that uh, since Korean was uh, sort of quasi Japanese subject, then Japanese has the uh, really not only the right but also the obligation, really, an obligation to protect Korean from the Chinese uh, uh, officials and the bandits. Uh, so that was uh, the Japanese excuse to involve in this border dispute. Right. And I guess, uh, I mean, the Korean response to that, as uh, as is probably well known, uh, you know, within this sort of new imaginary space of uh, kind of Korean potentiality, I guess, that, that Kandor or that Manchuria at large is becoming, obviously, the response to the Japanese claim that you are basically Japanese subjects because we control Korea is not always welcomed. You know, the, the response is uh, not universally positive, it's fair to say. Um, and so uh, I guess then the kind of this generates a situation in which Manchuria is a is a, a cradle for uh, a kind of burgeoning Korean nationalism in this early twentieth century and, and and right up to through to the thirties um, when Japan kind of consolidates its control over the region. Um, but uh, you, you, you mentioned the uh, bandits, and they are a kind of uh, this is a key concept within these kind of uh, efforts of Japan to uh, govern this region. Um, how do you see? Uh, I mean, it's an unclear category for, for a start because everyone just calls everyone else a bandit uh, in order to try to discredit them at this time. But how do you see the role of of, of banditry per se within this kind of frontier society and uh, in this kind of cauldron of of developing uh, nationalist consciousness and and, and and hardening of borders and so on? Again, this is a great question. Um, so we, we know that Manchurian is, is, was a frontier, right? That the chain deliberately uh, sort of evacuate the space, uh, sort of create this non-governmental status on Manchuria. So when you have a vast land with very you know, little government efforts uh, to rule this area, you know, uh, naturally the non-government forces took place, right? Um, it maintained order or create order or you know destroy the previous order and that is the you know uh the case of Manch- uh, manchurian bandits uh precisely because manchuria was was a frontier where the government institution was very weak of the 20th century the bandits uh, often played a critical role in shaking you know in shaping the local political ecology and even economic ecology like you mentioned, everybody called it the other side bandits. So it's a very fuzzy term because uh, bandits in Manchuria could mean very different things. Some people uh, could be bandits and, uh, you know, uh, law-binding civilians at the same time. And sometimes they could be the government soldier uh, and the bandit at the same time. Um, they switch their role uh, <laughs> uh, flexibly and constantly. Um, the best example I think it was Zhang Zuolin. Later on, he became the warlord of Manchuria, right? And and really uh, one of the early modernizers of uh, Manchuria. So it's it's very interesting to see that Manchuria uh, in these vast frontier bandits actually played a very active role, not only in the local politics but also in the uh, imagination of Manchuria. Like I mentioned in the book. Uh, in the early 20th centuries, uh, particularly in Japan, uh, Manchurian bandits became a sort of a Robin Hood image uh, to describe these uh, virgin land needed to be exploited, needed to be developed. So bandits in Manchuria was largely romanticized by the Japanese uh, journalists uh, and, and the media. Uh, that was also how the Chinese revolutionaries, you know, uh, got attention to the Manchuria because so many Japanese media portrayed these Robin Hood-like image of Manchurian bandits uh, in this vast land that uh, people like Song Jiaren said, hey, this is a good idea, let's recruit them, and uh, maybe they can contribute to our to, to our revolutionary cause. 
So <laughs> Manchuria image uh, from all aspects. Right, right. So, they, so I guess they kind of have a dual role in that regard because, for one thing, they they do reinforce this idea of a almost sort of romantic imaginary frontier space. I mean, the yeah, as you say, this Bazoku or uh, Maze, right? This kind of um, figure of the the horse riding Manchurian bandit is a kind of uh, Robin Hood esque figure. But on the other hand, uh, the presence of people doing uh, non state things in the context of a Japanese empire which is avowedly modernist and uh, based on you know these kind of new concepts of order uh, which have come about in part as a result uh, of what you mentioned earlier this collision with European ideas of um, you know, statehood and imperial kind of organization um, that the bandits for the, for, for this project are, are a big threat um, and so in chapters four and five um, and and indeed six you kind of uh, charts how some of these more categorizing regimes of new international legal frameworks and uh, and of course what what went with that in terms of the boundaries that were drawn around both national sovereign territory and between ethnic groups how that kind of all uh, started to make itself felt uh, in this in this frontier region um, so how does the Tumen River case and the other, this kind of borderland and, and multi ethnic space um, how does this kind of relate to the bigger questions of territory and sovereignty that were taking shape between East Asian nations at this at this key period, kind of in the first decades of the 20th century, um, with uh, significant influence from Japan? Mm. So uh, the dominant assumption of the uh, coming of international law uh, was that you know uh, international law was a European regime that spread. Uh, through uh, diffused to East Asia through uh, European colonization. Um, in terms of the international law discourse, that might be true because everyone would talk about how you know William Martin translate uh, the uh, elements of international law, the one Guogongfa into Chinese, that became the starting point of East Asian adopting the international rhetoric. But in this book, I try to give a, a different picture to see how the local people, local agents actually implement the new rhetoric. And I found that, you know, uh, rather than saying it was a, a completely foreign idea, the local agents try to mingle the traditional rhetoric with the new rhetoric and to give the new, you know, uh, source of legitimacy uh, an old content, an old sort of connotations. I said, this is not something new. This is something we always did, right, in, in, in the back. So um, all the three sides um, manipulate international or rhetoric uh, to argue for their territorial rights. And in this case, you know, and, now, uh, and also I used uh, you know, the, the episode uh, about how the new ideas of no man's land, uh, Terra Nalias, was used by a Japanese jurist to define to try to redefine Kendo to say that you know maybe the international law itself was not uh, entire European invention you know ever since the 16th and 17th century uh, through the Jesuits and through other um, visitors European visitors to East Asia and vice versa the two sides of uh, the the Eurasian continents already in a constant legal negotiation and uh, conversation about the ideas of, you know, state and territory. So they just, you know, borrowed from each other uh, without, uh, you know, clear conscious uh, to do so. So in my case of the Tumen River, I showed that the very ideas of international law or use of international law was uh, not that new. To the local people, uh, they they knew this is this is a new regime, but all they do was to try to, to give this new regimes an old meaning. Um, so in that case, the transition from so-called pre-modern to modern uh, is not, after all, not that clear uh, in this in this frontier region. You know that you can be transit forward or transform, you know, backward or, you know, they, they really hibernated. Um, this is something I, I found in my 
research. And this is why the sort of real local perspective is so important because at a kind of macro level, you can't tell so easily that these older ideas or that this kind of gradualist um, kind of almost bricolage kind of approach to assembling a, an understanding of, of, of what, what a legal regime is and, and, and who is who and what territory is, you can't tell that that kind of process is occurring if you're focusing on the kind of interstate relationship only. The, the, the kind of close-at-hand Truman focus is, is what gives this so much nuance here. Um, but I, I, I mean, just and, and then just to sort of finish out, I, I mean, your uh, conclusion it offers a few uh, kind of very, uh, I guess, revealing biographies, brief biographies of a few figures who continued after the period in question to play salient roles within broader regional affairs, showing just how much of what was going on around the Tumen during this period uh, ended up kind of projecting into wider relationships between each country uh, and each in each uh, political centre um, in the ensuing decades. And then you finish with a kind of quite poignant epilogue about uh, a more, much more recent film, Tumen River, Korean film uh, about this borderland area. So could you just say what, why you chose to have that as your kind of coda and, and in a way what the contemporary situation uh, in Yemben, as it is now called, still owes to this historical period that the book focuses on mostly? Oh, thank you. I'm glad you mentioned that epilogue. Um, this is uh, where the project started. I, as I mentioned, this is how I first interest in, in this area because of the contemporary issue of the uh, refugees and border crossing, so on and so forth. And uh, Zhang Lu's movie was a very revealing uh, case to, you know, to show that how local people, you know, Zhang Lu himself was, uh, you know, Korean Chinese. Uh, he was born and raised in the Yanbian area, and uh, the film was almost a documentary um, uh, to show you know, how the local uh, view um, these phenomenon. But more importantly, I think Zhang Lu provide an alternative uh, understanding and the resolution of, of the territory tension or the national tension that persisted uh, in East Asia region for over, you know, seven decades. If we kind of, you know, World War II as the sort of a starting point, the Cold War and post-Cold War. Because in that film, there wasn't really clear ideas of national boundary, national interest. We saw a border that uh, uh, was constantly violated uh, by the local people, by the local society. What bind them together was a kind of like family tie, relatives, kingship, friendship, uh, a promise to your friends, friendship, right? So this is a very unique humanistic aspect to understand what border means, what border and boundary actually means to local society and local people. That perspective uh, was rarely found, rarely found in any of the historical or a political narrative about any uh, boundary or border. So I think it's very, it provides us a very valuable uh, sort of uh, 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 perspective to understand the true meaning of the boundary. And they also, uh, you know, the Zhang Lu's interview remind us that the physical border actually didn't change at all, right? Uh, when I read his, his word, I realized that no matter you call it Tumen or Tuman, the physical border was always there. But we can't say that history doesn't, you know, didn't change anything. History moved, right? His history uh, 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 is, you know, rhymes. Uh, it didn't copy, but it rhymes. So what changed is the people's perception uh, and understanding of the border. That gave the project even more uh, a more fascinating. I think uh, uh, aspect. Um, a lot of the book talk about the remaking or the rejoin of the border, but in the case of the Tumen River, they didn't really significantly rejoin the boundary. Right, the boundary was still the same boundary 500 years ago, but the people's understanding and the people's perception of these precise boundary changed significantly, and that change we called modernization.
Right. Well, I think that's a fantastic place to uh, to wrap up and uh, get gives a great, uh, really captures really well the the kind of humanistic uh, approach that I think uh, you've taken here. Um, so Nianshan, thank you so much uh, for uh, talking to us today. Um, before we let you go, perhaps I could just ask, uh, what is it you have uh, on on the go at the moment? What kind of projects have developed since the uh, the writing of this book? Uh, I'm currently working on a new book project. Uh, which explores the 400 years history of a small neighborhood in Shenyang, the biggest city in Manchuria. Uh, the uh, interesting about these small neighborhood uh, is it, it, originally it was one of the Tibetan Buddhist Lama temple that built by Hong Taiji, the founding king, uh, founding emperor of the Qing. But right now, it, it is the most thriving Korean enclave uh, in urban Manchuria. Uh, I want to explore how the transition happened and what involves in this transition. So this is basically my next book project. Oh, fantastic. Well, I hope, I, I, I mean, I, I don't need to hope because I'm sure it will have exactly <laughs> the same kind of, uh, yeah, uh, deeply human and, and deeply local uh, insight, which uh, is so valuable in this book we've been discussing today. Um, but that sounds great. And we'll uh, all look forward to reading that, I'm sure. Um, but Nianchen, uh, yes, thank you very much for being on the show today. It was uh, wonderful talking to you. And listeners, thank you very much for listening, as ever, to New Books in East Asian Studies. It's a podcast channel on the New Books Network, and it will be back with you again very soon. Goodbye.